I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Hi, everybody. I'm thrilled to be partnering with Start Small, Think Big. You need to know about them. They help under-resourced entrepreneurs gain access to critical services they need to build sustainable small businesses that generate real wealth for themselves, their families, and their communities. They do this by engaging with a top-tier network of professional volunteers who provide free and high-quality legal, financial, and marketing support. Last year alone, their volunteer network provided 1,300 small businesses with pro bono support valued at $14-plus million. 95% of Start Small's businesses are women, minority, or under-resourced entrepreneurs. No other nonprofit organization in the country provides this kind of comprehensive support to the population. Start Small, Think Big has developed a page on their website called Shop Our Businesses. And this page features some of the businesses that they are supporting who are currently doing business online and need help now more than ever to support their businesses. So go to startsmallthinkbig.org and help out. I loved talking to Kimberly McCrite about her book. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Reconstructing Amelia, which by the way, was the fifth novel she wrote, but the first to sell. And that's a great story in and of itself. That book, Reconstructing Amelia, was nominated for the Edgar, Anthony, and Alex Awards and was called Entertainment Weekly's favorite book of the year. It was also optioned for film by HBO and Nicole Kidman's Blossom Films. Her second adult novel, Where They Found Her, was a USA Today bestseller and a Kirkus Best Mystery of the Year. She's also the author of the New York Times bestselling young adult trilogy, The Outliers, which was optioned for film by Lionsgate and Reese Witherspoon's Pacific Standard. Her latest book is called A Good Marriage, and it is really good. So you should definitely check this out and follow all the twists and turns that I had to do. And it was, it was great. So listen to hear more about Kimberly. So welcome, Kimberly. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Would you mind telling listeners what your amazing book is about? I truly enjoyed it and got so wrapped up in it, by the way, (laughs) that the kids are sitting next to me when I was reading it. And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, no, no, it's not, it's, wait, no, you're not going to believe it. (laughs) And I so now my little daughter, she keeps asking me, well, you know, who, who was the culprit? And (laughs) anyway. That's awesome. Well, I know when you're, when you're including the kids in it, that's a good time. You can't help yourself. That's yes. <laughs> yeah. So my, my book, A Good Marriage, is set in my neighborhood, Park Slope. It takes place over one week in the summer when most of the kids are away at sleep boy camp and their parents are all gearing up for the event of the summer, which is an adults only party with a kind of sexually adventurous side to it. Sexually adventurous, but fun. It was always meant to just be fun. But this year after the party, one of the women turns up dead. Her husband is quickly arrested and he reaches out to a former law school classmate named Lizzie. Lizzie is in the neighborhood whose own marriage is falling apart. As she's drawn into Park Slope, she quickly realizes that neither her friend nor his wife were who they appeared to be, but then her own husband doesn't seem to be either. A good marriage is really part legal suspense, part domestic suspense, but it's also meant to be a genuine exploration of what it means to sustain a marriage over time and the secrets some couples keep and the compromises they make in order to stay together, whatever the cost. Awesome. Well done. Good summary. (laughs) Let's back up here to this sleepaway camp party where all the parents are sneaking upstairs to different rooms to get together with different people. Did you just make this up or was this a party you were invited to or 
am I just not invited to the sleepaway camp parties? What's going on? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know what to tell you. Jimmy, if you're not invited, I really don't know what to tell you. you know, it's a party we host every year. No, it's not. A party we host every year. Although I have, you know, definitely started considering it after writing the book. But you know, it's the, the party itself is really a compilation of a couple different things. You know, parties like that that happen. You know, parties that I know about situations that I know about, I will say it's not an exact replica of an exact party, but it's really a piecemeal compilation of a number of different things from Park Slope. I was very struck by how sort of chill everybody was about what had been going on and who had been upstairs with who. And everybody's just like, oh yeah, you know, no biggie, you know, (laughs) kind of attitude. Exactly. I mean, you know, in the process of writing this book, I talked to a lot of people in all different areas, like, you know, middle of the country, California, just friends. I was talking about the subject matter. And really almost everybody had a story of something like this in their community, which I found really interesting. And it, and it, it is always a, a piece of it is people don't know if it's real, right? Like, you know, none of the people I spoke with had been to the parties themselves, but, you know, I'd actually heard of someplace of people wearing a particular kind of clothing to signal on Friday nights that they were going to be at this party that it happened. So, you know, I know that for sure they do go on and I think they take different forms depending on what community you're in. Wow. Well, interesting. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm remarried as of three years ago, so I'm not really in the market for any swapping, but I wish I had known. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> If it changes, you can let me know and I'll try to, I'll try to connect. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm good. I'm all good. <laughs> That's funny. You must tell me about how you got such a good legal perspective in this book, because it very much felt like you must, are you a lawyer yourself? I'm I sure I should know this. You have like, it was all very real and detailed and everything. Yeah, I was a practicing attorney for, I guess, three or four years. I was a big firm litigator in New York. I worked at Cravath right out of law school. Then I worked at Paul Weiss. I do have big firm experience, but that was all as a corporate litigator. The only criminal experience I had, I did a little bit of pro bono work and I was a summer a summer intern at the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I have a little criminal experience, but I could not certainly have written this book without being a lawyer because what it allowed me was was to know what I didn't know. And so from that point, I consulted a lot of experts. I had a criminal defense attorney who let me shadow him and he took me to Rikers. You know, I actually went to Rikers and sat in one of those rooms and rode the bus and like, you know, did did the whole thing. So I I know what that's like. And I, I went and watched him argue in court and listened to him talk about his clients. And because criminal law is a very specific thing. And if you go to a national law school, I went to Penn in Philadelphia, you tend not to learn about a lot of the details of it. So I did that first. And then I also... I, and I consulted like a U.S. attorney who had made the transition to working at a private firm so to, to get some of those those details. Because, again, be, having my background, I knew enough to know what I didn't know and what questions to ask. But then after I had written the book, I had a lot of people read it. I really wanted to get the details right. So I had that same criminal defense attorney read it. I had a prosecutor read it. I consulted a retired homicide detective. I consulted a fingerprint expert who worked on the fingerprints during 9-11. So I did a lot of research. I tend to do the research after the fact, though. I really just wrote the book first. To me, those things don't lead. They are, are things to be worked out after the fact. So I did have to change some details to get that kind of stuff right at the very end. But I really lead with character first, not even with story. And then once I get the characters right, then I work on perfecting the mystery. And then last for me is really those kind of details, because I think you can tweak the story to make the details exactly right. 
But the twists and turns in this book, like there were so many. Like I, I kind of go into thrillers now thinking, okay, something's not going to be what I think. Like, let me have it. Where is it going to pop up? But in this case, there were so many, like, <laughs> like red herrings, essentially, and things. And I'm like, how did you go when you were plotting? Did you have it all in your head? Or did you actually think maybe you were going to go down that one path and then said, oh, no, wait, this could be even more interesting? Did that, does that question make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, the first issue is I don't plot in advance. (laughs) So there like is no plotting that takes place. Like I said, I really start with the, I wanted to write a book about marriage. So that really led for me, like the themes and the, and, and the characters. And that was my starting place. So I don't work out all those twists and turns. I will say that like, I know the whodunit part, which I will do my best not to, to give away. So I know that there's kind of always one big central mystery. And I know, you know, is it going to be the person who it's set up to be at the beginning, et cetera. So I'll know the answer to that question. And the rest comes through the writing and revision, really. I, I do a first draft and then I, I do about 10 or 12 rewrites of the entire book. And by rewrite, I don't mean like, I mean, <laughs> I almost rewrite every single word and pull out whole plot threads and, and knit them back together. I figure out the story really through that process of writing it. And it's that sounds terrible. It is kind of terrible and, <laughs> and terrifying because, you know, you, you're kind of like perched on a, on a ledge a lot of the time being like, I hope I figure this out, how it's going to come together. And you're writing oftentimes from an instinctual subconscious place where I'm, I know something should be true. I just don't always know why. And that's when relying on the characters helps because if you know your characters really well and they're really well developed, the answer to the why, and like, you know, there's a scene early on in the book where Lizzie, who's the main character, she works with a a more senior partner who has her take on the case, her friend's case, and, and has her do that. And I knew that would be true. And I knew he would do that. And I knew who he was, but I didn't know why he would do that exactly in the very first draft. And later it, it becomes a, not a big twist, but a small one in the book, why he, why he wants her to take on the case. And that I figured out from knowing him later, I really developed later. And there is no cooler thing when, for me, that's why I do it is when it all locks together and you're like, oh my God, that's why I did that. Like to be able to see it revealed to you. you. And so when the twists feel genuine, a lot of them were surprising to me as, as I revise. And that's the way it has been for me in every book I have ever written. And like I said, the, the scary part about that is you're writing blind most of the time until very late in the process. Is it clear to me that it is going to work out? <laughs> it's not always, you don't always know, but you're right. There are many twists. And, and so what I like about that is you might get some of them, but it's highly unlikely you will get all of them. So I like the idea of every reader kind of finding a way to be surprised in it. And I hope that they're surprised, but I hope that I've seeded enough. I mean, every single one of the twists is supposed to be well seeded enough that at the end, you feel like, oh, I didn't know that, but I should have or could have known that if I had been paying attention. So anyway, so I, I, and that they're satisfying for who the characters are. For me, when I read a mystery, I never want to get to the ending and feel like somebody was brought out of left field, like, holy, like, oh, here's the killer is the person you didn't meet. <laughs> <laughs> not have guessed it because you didn't meet them before. (laughs) That drives me crazy. Um, I really want to feel like, damn it. Like I, ah, that was, you know, that, that should have been obvious. So that again, it's, it's, it takes a lot of revision and it takes a lot of readers, you know, giving you reactions because 
it's a very delicate balance between giving enough information and not too much. And, and you cannot figure that out on your own because you know all the twists. And honestly, even, you know, my agent and my editor at a certain point, we all knew, know the twists too much. And so you have to constantly be finding people who don't know and, and make sure that they kind of didn't see something coming too much. And it comes down to single sentences. You're deciding, do you, do you say that one thing that will be one thing too many? But it, it's obviously, obviously I enjoy it too. So it's, it is a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Wow. I mean, it just shows like when you read it, it comes together so well. And it's nice to know that it, you didn't just sit down and type it all out and have it. I mean, because that makes, I don't know, that makes me feel better as a reader, like how much thought and energy and effort went into it. It's just really remarkable. How long did this book end up taking, like start to finish? I think I, I, usually it's like 18 months for me from start to to finish, the first drafts are very fast. And I, you know, I'm working on a book now and, you know, I can write three or 400 pages in a few months, but they're terrible. <laughs> they're terrible. <laughs> I, you know, my like, when are you going to be done? I'm like, soon, It's but it's terrible. I mean, nobody can read that. That's terrible. And I think it's just, if you do an outline first, you're front loading your work, right? I mean, you're figuring things out in advance. That's your process. So you know, I, I can write the first draft quickly, but the revision process is probably like a 10 month long process. And I think, you know, it doesn't, it feels bad sometimes, but a lot of the time it, it just feels like my process. You know, I've accepted that that's just the way it is. And so while it can sometimes feel like wasted time, it's time I would have spent outlining, right? So it's, it's, you're doing it at the back end or the front end, depending on your style. This is like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. (laughs) It's working for you. (laughs) And if I could find an easier way to do it, I would. But yeah, for now I'm stuck with this, which is just, you know, my process. It is what it is. (laughs) At least it it works. Right, that's right. I also found it really interesting in the book, seeing up close the relationship between Lizzie and her husband and his dependency on alcohol and how that played out throughout the book and the different attempts to try to curtail it and failures and how it affected her. Can you talk more about adding that as a, as a through line of the book as well? Yeah. So I'm a recovered alcoholic myself. And so it's something I always kind of wanted to, I just wanted to write about. And I didn't get sober until after we were married, like I guess two or three years after we were married. So it's obviously different because this book is written from Lizzie's perspective, from the the spouse's perspective. And it's certainly alcohol in our marriage didn't play out the way it did. It was actually very not extremely disruptive. It's very disruptive in, in Lizzie and Sam's life. And, he, you know, he loses his job as a result, puts him in financial difficulties. And I think that's, you know, again, my situation wasn't that, but that's very common. And I think it was interesting to look at it from the perspective of, of a wife having to kind of deal with that fallout and take on the, the mantle. And I think it's, it's really complicated, you know, obviously like becoming sober and, and, but I think the issue more broadly is, you know, which everyone can relate to is the idea of whatever your spouse's problems are, whatever they struggle with, the fact that their problems do become your problems. And I was just actually talking to my husband about this the other night, that it is, I think, one of the biggest challenges in a marriage that that lasts a long time is how do you continue to have sympathy for your spouse and really want to help them with their problems when their problems do feel like your problems you know you're like don't don't bring that to me that's like my problem like I don't I it's hard to get, and continue to care and have empathy and sympathy for those issues when 
they're so inextricably linked with with your own. So anyway, so so that was kind of how the you know the alcohol played out. But I obviously like I have a lot of knowledge from my own experience about what it's like to to it's very scary to be an alcoholic and to have blackouts and, and not remember things. And so I I, I hope that people empathize a little bit with Sam. No, I think you wrote him in such a way that you do feel bad. You know, he's like devastated when he wonders what could possibly have happened. And yeah, your heart really goes out to him. I mean, it's really tricky <laughs> situation. So Absolutely. And I think it's easy to say, like, you wouldn't stay if you're Lizzie or you wouldn't, you know, you, you would make different choices. But then it's really seeing them play out on a moment by moment basis as she struggles to be like, oh, I'm going to, you know, make an ultimatum now, or I'm going to do this thing. And you can see why it's so easy. Like these problems look so easy from the outside uh, when you're not in the marriage yourself, but it's, it's a lot more complicated when you're in it. I feel like any problem inside a marriage is magnified because you're living it 24 seven. And it's like, it's like, like you were saying, it's mirrored back and forth. So it, it grows <laughs> exponentially. Exactly. Yeah. What do you think? You've written now a book called A Good Marriage. What's a, what is a good marriage? You know, I think that the really the central point of the book is it's different for every couple. And I that maybe is or maybe isn't a satisfying answer. But a bit of what the book looks at is I think that we believe that, I think as a society, we try to say that, that marriage is there is kind of a good marriage or these, these clear things you must do to have a good marriage. Like you must be faithful and you must be completely honest and you, and you must, you know, um, your spouse must be your best friend. And there these, these rules, right? Like, and, and if you do these things that that is a good marriage. And I, I just think it's really a kind of a fallacy. I think that that might be true in certain marriages, but but how could there be one kind of good marriage when people are all so different? And I think a marriage really is a living thing between two people. So there's you, there's your spouse, and then your, there's your marriage, which is something that has to be like cultivated and sustained and changes over time because you change over time and so does your spouse. And the things you need change over time, which is why some marriages don't succeed and they don't, people don't stay together because they change. It doesn't mean necessarily that they were wrong to begin with. And so I really didn't, I, I don't, I don't want people to come away with, with an idea that there is one thing that makes a good marriage, but I'd rather have them questioning the notion that there are these specific ingredients that are going to be true for every couple. Because I, I, I don't, there, you know, there's an example of a, again, I don't want to do spoil, too many spoilers. It's the trouble about talking about a mystery, but there's one couple in the book they're like brutally honest with each other. They like say everything that, that is on their mind. And that, you know, isn't necessarily the best thing. There's another couple that that does have an open marriage and, and you know, that doesn't necessarily turn out badly for them. So I'm really trying to, to play with some of these expectations and notions. And by actually like the mirror of that in the book is, is, is the legal system, because that's kind of the parallel. I think that's another institution where we're like, there's right and there's wrong and there's black and there's white. And it's very simple. And in this book, it's very clear that both on the prosecution side and the defense side, there's a lot of gray and a lot of ambiguity and, and really what is guilt and what is innocence. So it's meant to look at both of those things. So great. That's what made it so hard to put down. I mean, <laughs> it's also great because you always wonder, I mean, everybody sort of banties about the expression, like you never know what goes on behind closed doors. So at least now you've opened up a few doors for us and <laughs> we get to peek in. <laughs> Well, that, that's, yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, the, the thing that made me want to read the book to begin with was really that, like, you know, we spend time with other couples who've been married a long time also. And I'm just 
never cease to be amazed at how different all those couples are and how different their marriages seem, you know, like some, like the power dynamic is totally different or they're really affectionate and some bicker and, and you really like, we'll come home from dinner and I'm always like, wait, so do they hate each other? That couple we were just with? <laughs> or is that just like their thing? Or like, are they joking? Like, I don't, I really, and I, I just find it fascinating because even, it's not even that people are necessarily trying to hide something, right? Like, it's not like they're trying to put on a perfect front. I think it's just the nature of, of it. Like you eat, and some people don't even know themselves whether they're happy, right? So, so true. So that's a whole nother layer on top of it. My husband and I went to a party like in the last six months or maybe a year now. Anyway, he got home and he's like, I feel like we just went to a party where everybody there hated their spouse. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, couldn't you tell? Like nobody wanted, it was like everybody went to separate corners of the room. There were all these angry stares. And I was like, I didn't even notice. I was just like bebopping along, like so excited to see everybody. <laughs> he's like, no, no, no. He's like, I think we were, and we had been just married then. And he's like, yeah, like we were the only happy people. And I'm like, meanwhile, I'm like screaming at him about something. So who knows? You know. <laughs> Well, that's, well, that's the thing. When I come home and I, and I say, are they happy? I'm like, wait, but are we happy? <laughs> what does that even mean? Yeah. I know. And the fact that no matter how close you are, it's still something you don't share that much about with even people who are super close to you because there's, there's like the sac- sacrosanct institution part of it where you just don't share it all. I don't know. So, yeah. <laughs> Marriage is- it is a very complicated thing. That's for sure. Wow. So tell me, can you say anything about the next book you're writing or what the plot is? Yeah. I mean, well, it's about a group of of old friends from college who head upstate for the weekend and they've kind of this troubled past and that troubled past ends up intersecting with with them running afoul of some locals upstate. They're kind of a group of city hipsters who head upstate to the Catskills for the weekend. So that's really all I can say about it for now, but I'm excited about it and it's got a pretty unique structure. So I'm having a lot of fun writing it. I love unique structures. (laughs) Whenever there's something different. That's why I also loved in your book how you had all the transcripts from the court interviews. There's a word for that that I'm not finding right to jury testimony. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. I did not, I went to business school. I did not go to law school. (laughs) Awesome. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, so, so much advice. I mean, it was a very long road for me to sell my first book. I wrote four unpublished books and it took me a decade from the time I stopped practicing law to sell my first book. So I think it's really important to understand that it can be a really long road if what you want is like publication with a traditional publisher and that there's a lot of hard work involved, but there is also a degree of luck. And I think it's important to recognize that. I think that cannot underestimate the importance of getting feedback, like having a writer's group or even just having, it doesn't have to be a group, even just like a couple, but you don't want just one person. Like you want several people because opinions differ. It's such a subjective enterprise, but it is impossible. As I was talking about with my, my book and trying to figure out the mystery, you really can't see what you're doing. If the story in your head is the story that's ending up on the page, if you don't have people responding to it. So that's just really a part of the process. And you have to learn to, to take feedback and, and digest it and figure out what it means for you. But, you know, perseverance does, does matter. And it can be, you know, like you, I think it's easy to look at people who have published books and think, oh, you know, that came easily for them. But behind every published author is usually a story of a lot of failure. 
What made you keep trying after four books that didn't sell? Why did you not give up? Terror? No. <laughs> um, I had I, I had thrown away a pretty illustrious career to chase a dream. So that, that was a piece of it. I did get extremely lucky. My first book I wrote, I took a leave of absence from my job, which is lucky. <laughs> so I was able to know I could give it a try. And I had this job to go back to. And I like was able to defer my law school loans and all that stuff. So that's really lucky. But in that time, I got an agent. And I finished the book in that year and I got an agent and I almost sold it right away. And so I think that was, I want to talk about luck. Yes, it was a rejection, but to have that success so quickly, relatively speaking as a writer, you know, success can come in the form of rejection sometimes. So to have that success, I held on to that for years because I really believed that if I had accomplished, I had no training, I was never an English major. And so I had never taken a class in writing. And I thought if I did that in a year, I'm a big believer in hard work. And so I thought if I keep working at it, but to be clear, by the time I was on book four and it was year 10, (laughs) like things were dark. It was not like, it was not good. And that was 2008. And I had started looking for a job again. I decided that that was it. I was done. And I, like, I, things to offer the world. I just was more unhappy than I was happy, you know, chasing this dream. And so I was like, I'm going to go back and be a lawyer, but no one would hire me because everyone was out of work. I'm literally like, I looked for a job everywhere. And so I finished Reconstructing Amelia, my first book, only because I couldn't find a job. And I actually finally got a job offer working at Penn Law in their communications department. So I'd have to commute from New York City, take the train every day. It was ridiculous. I got that job offer two days before the auction was held to sell Reconstructing Amelia. And, you know, I sold it. And then I got to call and say, I'm not taking the job, (laughs) which was the best phone call to make ever. But anyway, so, you know, it was... It just, it's not easy. You know, that's my point. Like, you know, you have a lot of dark times and you have to find ways to to get affirmation and, and build a life around the process that allows you to keep doing it. And again, I am really lucky. I was, my husband financially supported me. And I think it's, it's important to know that, know people's stories because it's easy to look at people and be like, how do you know how they do that? I had somebody supporting me financially and it enabled me to chase a dream. And like, that's, you know, you see, so you have to find either a day job or, you know, a situation that allows you to just, do not give up. Wow. Well, that's super inspiring. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on Moms Don't Time to Read Books. Thank you for shining light on a lot of other marriages for my reading pleasure. <laughs> of course. It was so great to meet you. Thank you so much for the time. You too. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to our sponsor, Start Small, Think Big, helping communities thrive one entrepreneur at a time. You can shop all their businesses and support so many small businesses during this really difficult time uh, due to the coronavirus. So please go check them out, startsmallthinkbig.org. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.